34. Gee, Willikers. Now go ahead and try to find Exodus 43. That'll be good. Give yourself a couple minutes. Exodus chapter 34. We'll finish up this chapter tonight. And, uh, and then next week we'll be in Exodus 35. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, for those of you that have looked ahead, been reading ahead, we are uh, rapidly approaching the end of our time in Exodus. It has been an absolutely fabulous journey, and it still has more even in these last five uh, chapters uh, to, to give us uh, for the glory of the Lord, His truth and the good of all men. Tonight's title of the sermon is Unguarded Glory. Unguarded Glory, we are in Exodus 34. We'll be covering verses 29 to 35. That is the end of the chapter. Who's excited? Just for time at church. Who's excited to learn about the Bible? Who's excited to be in God's Word tonight? Anybody? Is that a weird, that's a weird way to start a service? Okay, amen. Thank you. Yes, that is correct. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited about this passage. I've actually been looking forward to this passage a lot. Um, it is not very long. We're talking, we're talking all of, what, seven verses? Uh, so six verses. So it's not many verses at all. Um, and we're going to walk from our time here in the Word right into communion. It will be absolutely uh, awesome and perfect to do so. So I look forward to it. All right, tonight's uh, main topic here in Unguarded Glory, we'll kick it right off with the crux of the matter as we settle in. Our first point tonight, we're not gonna, I'm going to break the, the few verses we have into verse by verse, sort of, uh, or at least section by section. Um, to, give us, to give us content. So I'm not going to read the whole thing at once. We're going to take it verse by verse. Uh, we're going to start with verse 29, and our first point here is that we, we find ourselves coming to the story. The story that we're coming into is Moses descending the mountain with the new, but also simply renewed covenant, right? So what he has in his hands is new, right? The tablets that God had him hew out of stone and bring up the mountain and then carve into it the copy of the Ten Commandments, the two copies of the Ten Commandments. He carries them down the mountain now. All right, so that's what all happened at the top of the mountain. God had reinstituted the covenant. There was grace upon grace. We saw the long-suffering kindness of God poured out among the children of Israel who had just so recently broken the covenant before they'd even gotten it in full, right? They only had the Ten Commandments. They broke all of those. They didn't even know about the tabernacle yet, and yet they had broken that commandment. And fittingly, Moses had dashed that, that, those copies of the covenant on the ground. But then he goes back up, right? God reveals even more glory to Moses. He's able to view and behold in some way aspects of the glory of God that had hereto been unseen prior to the fall, or since the fall, right, since the fall. Um, and so what we have is Moses descending down the mountain with those tablets, with that grace, bringing it back to the people. And here we come to our first point of Moses, the human reflector, in verse 29 of chapter 34. It says this, and it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands as he was coming down the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, capital H, God, the Lord, the one and true God. All right, that's verse 29. Moses comes down Mount Sinai with a skin condition, and that's a weird way to start a section of scripture, but that is exactly where we find ourselves. Moses the human reflector. Now, what do I mean by human reflector? This is important because all of this culmination of renewing the covenant is here now in Moses descending the mountain, bringing the renewed covenant, which is the exact same covenant. God is just reestablishing it with his people, right? Because they had broken it. 
It's reestablishing it with his people through Moses as Moses comes down from Mount Sinai now a second time after a second 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord. And he brings with him the covenant, but something is incredibly different about Moses. Namely, he is glowing, right? Now, this is not like the glowing you're thinking when, a, when like we, we see a woman who's pregnant with child and we say that she is a glow, right? It's like what we say to pregnant women to make them feel better about the fact that they feel horrible as they're carrying around and growing a new human being. And whether they look nice or not, you say that they're a glow because that's what you're supposed to say. But this is not that. Nor is this the glowing that you would experience if you were very, very hot outside and sweating and you're glistening with sweat. This is literally Moses glowing from experiencing, right? Because it's more than just a visible thing. He's experienced something of the glory of God that no one has experienced on the earth up until this point since the fall. And in doing so, Moses becomes a human reflector. Moses descends within his hands the grace of the new covenant, but literally also on his face. The grace of the new covenant, the renewed covenant, the previous covenant, the same covenant, God graciously extending it, Yet again, as it was, because God keeps his word to the people who had destroyed it, broken it, crushed it, ground it up, just like the, Moses did to the idol. And here is this visible representation of the grace of God. Moses has no idea, by the way. This is kind of important. We'll talk about this later at the end. Moses doesn't know it, but he's super shiny, right? He's very shiny. Now, we haven't read it yet in the chapter. If you've read ahead, you get it. But we're going to see this is shiny in a way that's very off-putting. This is not... This is not like anything, it's probably most accurately described as hard for us to understand. Just That's probably the best, best description of it. And I know that because when we read the reaction of the people, it is a startling one. And so however Moses is shiny, he has no idea. Moses has been with the Lord, experienced the Lord, and is now in some ways coming down the mountain, reflecting the grace and glory of God to the people. He doesn't even know it. He has no idea. Here in the shininess of Moses, we see some things, though. Moses, in beholding the glory of God as God's creation, essentially became supercharged like something from a Marvel movie. We all know that we know the parts in the Marvel movie where the superhero, right, like suddenly gets a jolt of superhero-ness, whatever that may be, and then they like radiate, they emanate glowing from their power, right, the fictional power that they get as a superhero. In some ways, this is what happens to Moses. Moses is literally shining, like that in the, in the superhero movie, right? You following me? Everybody's following me? So experience that. Like, obviously, it's in a movie, so we, we, we're used to it in a movie. But if that happened in real life, we would all be very startled. But that's what Moses is doing as he's coming down the mountain. In his hands are the, is the gracious representation, the physical representation that God has renewed his covenant with his people. They had broken it, and though they were unfaithful, God's grace went forward. And additionally, on his face, he is literally supercharged and reflecting the glory of God. Moses was rightly reflecting the glory of God in a way that it had been designed for in the garden to some extent, Okay. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is Moses is a part of God's creation, correct? Amen? We all agree? All right. Just as Adam and Eve were, correct? All right. Moses, though, is fallen creation. And so whatever experience he had with the glory of God, to whatever extent it was, certainly it was not the fullness of God's glory that, that he beheld, correct? But in some way, he beheld the glory of God in a more 
full way than anyone had previously experienced it because he had requested of God, because he was faithful to what God had said for him to be faithful to. He was obedient to the Lord and he glorified the Lord. And so God granted him this wonderful opportunity, this gift, this grace. And to whatever extent he had, as God's creation beheld the more full glory of the Lord, he was now imbued with the reflection of that glory to whatever extent he was reflecting it. Much like you would have understood Adam and Eve to be in relationship with the Lord prior to having been fallen in the Garden of Eden. I'm really using extra vowels today. Garden of Eden, right? Not Eden. All right. The Garden of, kind of like, I'm an Eden. All right. In the Garden of Eden. And in that relationship where they're experiencing the more fullness of God in, in direct relationship prior to the fall, is in somehow a way in which Adam, or in which Moses experienced it as he beheld the glory of the Lord here in, on Mount Sinai. And so it makes sense that the creation of God would accurately, right? We know this is the design. The creation of God accurately reflects the glory of God. Amen? That is literally the, the purpose of creation. The purpose of man, right, is to glorify God. That is his chief end. Amen? You can amen that, because yes. it is. It wasn't a trick question. The glory, right, let's try it again. The chief end of man is to glorify God, amen? amen. Certainly, and to make much of him, to praise him forever and ever. That is what our, our, our responsibility, our goal, our, our creative mandate has always been. And so when the creation of God comes into contact with the glory of God, there's an accurate reflection to the world of that glory. It's essentially what we have in Moses. It's an awesome picture. But it's so awesome that it becomes too much for the people to handle. And that's our next point, that Moses is himself too much to handle in the chapter now. We'll look at verses 30 through 33. Remember, Moses has come down. He's got the, the reestablished covenant, the renewed covenant, right, in his hands with the, with the tablets. He's glowing. He has no idea. And he descends the mountain. And in verse 30, we pick up the reading. It says, so when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. <laughs> it's literally got, I just want to say, it's got the vibe of like every alien movie where they encounter aliens, and like the ship lands, and the landing gear comes out, and then the alien walks out, and he looks like whatever particular producer decided an alien looked like in that movie, and all the people are like, whoa, they're scared, right? Moses is walking down the mountain, and he's literally glowing, and all the people are like, what is going on? I'm out. I'm out, Right? It's exactly what the picture is here. All right, 31. Then Moses called to them. Moses is like, what's wrong, guys? All right. He calls to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him. Moses spoke to them, and afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. All right. (laughs) Hopefully, you've, you've got this weird picture in your mind, because this is indeed a super weird picture. And it's awesome because in Exodus, we've gotten some of these really amazing and I would say incredibly impactful scriptural pictures that God has graced us with. All right, so I want you to understand the people are afraid of Moses. And I would say that they are rightly afraid of Moses. Not just because it's super weird. It's, it's just doesn't, this isn't something that's normal, right? Again, just imagine you're actually here and I were to suddenly like, glow, like, I don't know, supercharged Superman. That would be super, you be, should be very afraid because that doesn't happen. That's not, that's not something that happens. 
Yet Moses here, his face is literally radiating as he's walking down the mountain. Could you imagine seeing someone? Like, you could literally probably pick up Moses from a good distance. And this is why Moses right, has to call to them, right? He has to call to them. That's probably also because as he's getting closer, they're getting further away. Like, oh no, Moses has been imbued by God with the destructive force to destroy us. We are evil people, right? Like, it's literally what you're saying. Like, here comes God's judgment. Moses is going to destroy us. <laughs> so Moses is coming down the mountain and the people rightly fear him. Moses was being here, firmly established as the mediator. God is letting his people know, this is the mediator between me and you. And in this, he's bestowing on Moses the responsibility and, and uh, office that he had given, and he's affirming it to the people. Literally, the people can see it written all over Moses' face at this point, right? Moses is the one who is mediating for them between God. And they should be very grateful that he is, because Moses has been a faithful mediator. Additionally, it shows that the covenant that they had broken was powerful, it was being shown to be a powerful covenant because of the God who had redeemed them and was with them. And there's two big things here. In Moses walking down, carrying the symbolic Ten Commandments written on stone as the covenant copies, and as he's carrying them down, his face is shining. And in doing so, God is saying, I am God, and I am with you. What an encouragement. These people who had broken the covenant of God so much so that he says, I do not want to be anywhere near you, right? Moses is going to meet with me outside the camp. I'm done with you people. When all they knew, they finally, when they finally were starting to see that they needed the presence of the God who had redeemed them, that there was one true God and they had failed him, that they had broken the covenant, and here comes Moses, shining. And what it shows them is that God was with them and he was powerful. He was the one true God. We know this because we don't have many instances of some human interacting with some false idol, and then they were glowing. They were aglow with the very glory of the idol. That's, that's not a thing, right? This was, this was supernatural because God is the one of all glory. It is the one true God. He, he has all glory, all honor. It is his. And so the creation, right, reflecting it here, Moses coming down, he's rightly reflecting that glory back. And the people should see that Moses indeed was, was letting them know that the, the covenant had been reestablished because that God was all-powerful and was indeed with them. And the final thing it knows, it's just a weird point to put in notes because it's also just a statement of fact and it sounds kind of trite, but God is great, right? The greatness of God is present in the fact that Moses, a glowing Moses with renewed covenant tablets, is coming down the mountain. This is also a separation from how Moses came down before. When Moses came down the last time, he was not glowing. I know that because if he had been, we would have had this kind of a story previously. We didn't have this kind of a story, right? Instead, Moses is coming down aglow with the glory of God, reflecting the glory of God to the people, establishing him as mediator, showing that God is there, he is present, and that he is all-powerful, and he has the same tablets, the tablets that were destroyed because of the disobedience of the people. Grace upon grace upon grace, because God is great. And his greatness here is shown in Moses. All of these things would, not, we, we would acknowledge could bring some fear into a sinful, broken people, right? Apart from the alien, 
super, just supernatural thing that's happening in front of them, it, it's also all the things that it shows and all the things that they are not. They are unholy people. God is holy. They had robbed God of glory and it is his glory. They thought they in some way were freed by an idol, but God is the one who redeems. So certainly, right? As Moses descends, they're freaking out. And as he gets closer, they're backing away. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. So Moses has to kind of call a huddle, right? He calls a team meeting. He's shouting now and he's like, hey guys, I'm, call, I'm with a loud voice calling out to them. He's like, Aaron, bring, bring the leadership, all right? Just, you've got to come talk to me. I'm not here. <laughs> Moses is like literally saying, I come in peace, right? I come in peace. And yet they're all back. So Aaron and the leaders, they come out to have a meeting. Since no one will come near to him, Moses has to convince Aaron and the leadership of the people to draw near. And I love, the, I love to say it that way, the drawing near, right? Because it's, it's the nearness of God that is goodness to us. And he had drawn so near to Moses. And now Moses is coming down representing that God is with his people and the people are running away and he has to call them. No, come near to me, draw near to me so that I can, I can tell you the goodness of the Lord. And so the leadership gathers and comes together around Moses. And Moses explains to the leaders the need to gather the people and not to fear because God is renewing the covenant with all the people. And so this is good news, right? Which another word for good news is gospel. This is church. You need a church answer, right? It's the gospel, right? It's, it's the gospel. This is the good news that God wants to be with his people, that God has redeemed his people, that God's covenant is true with his people. And so this is exactly what happens. The leaders go back, they talk with the people, they gather the congregation of Israel together so that they can come out and not be afraid by glowy Moses, right? And Moses here is then able to establish the renewal of God and his people. The, Bible, the people draw near and Moses establishes this renewal of God and his people. Afterwards, after he's done this, right, he's now still glowing. He explains to them the commandments of the Lord that he had just received now for second time on Mount Sinai, Right? They now know the commandments of the Lord. His face is glowing. Two copies of the covenant, right? Afterward, Moses covers his face with a veil. Covers his face with a veil. Like, I don't even know, I don't even know an accurate way to describe this. Like, he says he covers his face with a veil, and I think we're immediately, like, shoved into Arabian Nights, right? And we think that's the kind of veil, like, women would wear a veil. Some sort of thing that would their eyes would be visible. Now, I just want to say this. I get, I get that idea that the eyes are visible. I don't even know if Moses' eyes are visible. I think this could have been something that was thin and enough to dim the glory of the Lord, but like the whole thing had to be covered. Like he had to like hood up, right? This is, a, this is like, this is something not experienced. I don't understand how, it's, this, it's why it's so hard to explain. Like we don't accurately understand what was happening with Moses. We don't know what it would be like to be that afraid in the presence of the visible glory of God. Like the visible glory. But we're going to see later that we actually have been exposed to so much more glory than even Moses. But to understand that visibly it's an awe-inspiring thing, is something that we know is a fact throughout Scripture, <laughs> right? Anytime an angel shows up, he says, fear not. fear not, right? Fear not. It's an all-inspiring thing 
to just see something that is in any way reflecting accurately the glory of God. Always is. And so that level of concern, Moses is then hiding from the people. And so our next point is that there is a guard between God and man. A guard between God and man. Now, literally here, we have Moses set up as a mediator, correct? Between God and man. And so he's literally going in between. I liked the word guard for a very specific reason. Let's look at verses 34 and 35 as it explains the operation now that glowy Moses is going to have to go through, right? Shiny Moses has to now set up some sort of protocol with the people and God. Here's what we read in Exodus 34. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry, I was on the wrong side of the page. Exodus 34, verse 34. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord, with him. Here's what we have set up for Moses in this guard between God and man. From this point forward until the glory, excuse me, until, from this point, let me try again. (laughs) Reading is not going well. From this time forward until the glory and the fallen Moses faded, a protocol was established. Now here's the protocol that Moses is not going to have to go through. This is his ritual every day. I would would imagine that he did not actually have to sleep necessarily with a veil. Maybe he did, right? Maybe it's keeping up the wife and kids. It's very possible. But this is going to be a daily ritual for Moses. When Moses, all right, would talk to God, right? Now, this is when he would talk with him on the regular. This is, he's down from Mount Sinai now. He has the the covenants here. The, The commands of the Lord now are with Moses to give to the people. Moses is giving them the tabernacle. He's giving them all the detailed laws, all those things we went through for so many months. He's giving them to the people. Now, when he's going to meet with the people, with with God, he's still going into little tent, little meeting tent, not tabernacle tent, little meeting tent, the tent of meeting, not the capital T, capital M tent of meeting, the one that's outside the camp. Because he's going, now we're going to build it. We're going to build the tabernacle. Isn't this exciting? It's all exciting news. But the the protocol is that when Moses would talk to God in the little tent, he would have no covering before the Lord. He would literally be unveiled before the Lord because it's the Lord's glory that he's accurately reflecting. And so he does not need to be veiled before the Lord. The Lord would then sit with him. He would give him the commands. He would give him whatever words, that, whatever instructions the people needed, whatever guidance, whatever judgments that, that Moses needed to take to the people, he would give them to him. And then Moses would exit the tent and speak the words of the Lord to the people, showing the glory of God and connecting it to the instructions of God. Okay? Moses would exit the tent. He would give the instructions of the Lord. This makes perfect sense. The glory of God is connected to the commandments of God. This is just how he gave the commandments of the God a few verses earlier. He came down the mountain, called the leadership together, said, tell the people to stop cowering in fear at me. I'm not the one they need to fear. I I have the commands of the Lord. I have the renewed covenant. It's all great news. Gathers the people, tells them the covenant, tells them the commandments, gives them the instruction, and then puts the veil on. That is going to be the protocol that Moses then follows for now until the glory of the Lord might fade from him. That's the protocol moving forward. And it's beautiful because it connects the holiness of God and God's glory that is separate, right? That causes the awe, that causes the fear, that causes the, the clear understanding that I am unholy, right? 
is connected to the fact that God's instructions are holy. They come from God. And so that holiness is seen in the shining face of Moses, but it's so, it's so much holier. Even that, that poor reflection of the glory of God is so much holier than the people that he must guard them from that holiness. It's more than they can handle. And so he veils his face on the day-to-day. This guard is a gift. It's a grace. That's what it is. He would then wear a veil amongst the people to shield them from the glory and simultaneously honor the holiness of that glory. That's what the veil did. The people could not handle it. It was too much. It would cause constant distraction, constant fear, and of course it would. You would be inspired by the awe of the glory of God every time you saw Moses. You would get nothing done. You would be standing there knowing your unholiness, seeking to honor God simply as you're staring at Moses. Nothing's going to happen. You're not getting anything done. There goes the glory of the Lord. Let alone those moments when you know what you did, there's fear, there's trembling, right? And so Moses would veil that, protecting them from the glory and also acknowledging and exalting that glory as holy, as something that needed to be guarded from unholiness. I've been putting in the notes three things because I talk about them all the time, so I don't know that we need to go to every reference for these, but we know that in the tabernacle, there was going to be a thick curtain that would separate what? The, holy, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of the Lord, the Holy of Holies from the holy place, right? It would se- separate the point from which the glory of God would touch earth and the point outside of it. It would separate the place that would only be attained, attended to once a year with the forgiveness of sins, the atoning blood, and everywhere else, right? We also know that veil then carried over, that curtain then carried over into the temple, where again we have the place where the holiness, the glory of God touches earth in the holy of holies, separated from the holy place, in a more permanent fixture in Jerusalem on the holy mountain, right? And we have this curtain yet again. And where's the cross come in, right? What happens at the cross? If you don't get it right, it's okay. We'll, t- we'll look at it later. But what happens at the cross that involves a curtain? The curtain's torn, right? That veil, as it's called, is torn from top to bottom as Christ dies, sheds his blood, gives his last breath. The mercy of God, the <laughs> The accessibility of God by man is now ever present through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? And the veil is torn. We know that that veil is there for one specific reason, that the glory of God must be guarded and exalted. It must be treated as holy that holiness is extended then to everyone who accepts the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that should feel, that should put some awe into some people, especially in this room, right? Moses can't walk around with his his face uncovered because he has beheld some diminished aspects of the glory of God. 
Yet that very covering veil was something that would be then employed in the tabernacle and then employed in the temple and it's ripped because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It leads us to the final piece of our service tonight. We're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to walk through communion. So that's why this doesn't need to be as long. And also, I don't think this needs to be as long. Like, this is what the text says, and it's so clearly a picture for us. Now, maybe it's not fully, maybe you're not fully getting how it maps onto, your, onto you yet. Maybe that's not quite, like, this is Moses, right? This is glowy Moses. It feels like maybe it's far away from us and its accessibility to us. It's, it's application to our lives. But I tell you, it is absolutely imminent to your life. It is, it is right there in how you should walk around your house, your workspace, where you live, when you go to the grocery store. This idea, this concept of shiny Moses and the veil on God's glory is something that we live every day for those who are in Christ. And this is where I want to talk about unguarded glory. Because everything we talked about before has been acknowledging that God's glory must be guarded. Amen? We must veil it. We must put it behind the curtain. It must be treated as the holy thing it is. And and then we have to walk through the reality that somehow, for some reason, God would look down at you and I and he would say, holy. You have to wrestle with that. You have to, that means something, right? Right? Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when Richard Dreyfus is carving his mashed potatoes into a mountain. He says, this means something, right? It means something, and it's real. The unguarded glory of God. All right, we need to talk about this. So we need to get from Moses, we're going to get from Moses to Jesus, and then from Jesus to us, all right? And we're going to do it in three points. And we're mostly going to stick in Matthew with a little bit of 2 Corinthians mixed in, Okay? Matthew and 2 Corinthians. Matthew makes a lot of sense. We're talking about Matthew. Now, for those of you that, that are unaware, many people believe that the four Gospels were actually written intentionally with four different flavors to the story of Jesus that would actually appeal to four different audiences. Now, in appealing to the audience, the stories are exactly the same. It is the same God. It is the same grace. It is the same salvation. It is the same truth. They are the same. They are all God's word. But they are revealed to four different groups of people, if you will. Matthew's closely aligns with how the Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, would have, a, would have been able to associate with the Messiah. And so there's a lot of messianic movement inside of the gospel of Matthew. There's a lot of connection points to those who would have walked in the way of the law of Moses. Those who would have understood the covenants of Abraham. And so Matthew makes perfect sense for us to go to when we're now going to seek to understand the connection point of moving from Moses to Christ and Christ to us. Because Moses had to wear a veil, but none of us wear a veil. We don't, we don't have a veil. And I want you to know that just like Moses was reflecting that glory of God, you have a more full picture of the glory of God you have a deeper access to the glory of God. And yet we are unveiled 
What does that mean? All right. First, we have to go from Moses to Jesus. So I want to talk about the shining face of our Savior. That'll be, that'll, that's going to be a direct connection, okay? Now, of course, the fullness of the life of Christ is uber-mediator. It's uber-law. It's, it's more than all of these things. Whatever the Exodus is, as, as clear as it has been a story of the redemption of slaves to freedom in God, is Christ. Christ is so much more, amen? Because he is the better all of it, right? He is better everything in Exodus. And that's, it's amazing. And so when we have a direct correlation, now we have so many, I could literally run to so many aspects of Christ accurately displaying the glory of God, amen? There's so many, the gospel's filled with them because he is God and he is man. And of course he accurately reflects the glory of God to the world. But more than that, we have a direct correlation to, to Christ's face, uh, as the scripture said, shown, right? Shining, glowing. We don't have to like mince words. He literally shines. His face literally shines like Moses's. All right, so let's go there. We're going to go to Matthew 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. And for those of you who are very adept at your Bible knowledge, you will know that Matthew 17 takes us to the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration. And for those of you who are experiencing the story of the Mount of the Transfiguration for the first time, we're going to take a story where Jesus has called his disciples to follow him. He's taken them to a mountain, all right? And here on this mountain, there's going to be a supernatural meeting, which sounds exactly like what Moses had, doesn't it? In some way, exactly like it. And we're going to see the exact result to the Savior as we see to Moses. All right, so we're going to read verses 1 through 8, I believe is what I have. Yeah, good. It says this, 17 verse 1, Matthew 17, 1. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses, look, Moses is there. Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because Peter can never not say something. That's just, it's Peter's curse. It's also Peter's gift. Peter's always got to open his mouth and say something. Uh, Verse 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I didn't yell it, but there's an exclamation point in my version of the scripture. So maybe I should have. Whatever it is, that sound was very loud. It was the voice of God speaking. Verse 6, and when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. This is exact, I mean, everything about this is exactly like Moses coming down the mountain. Right? Jesus is there. He's on a mountain. He is displaying the glory of God. The people that are with Jesus become afraid of the glory of God, right? They hear the voice of God. They see the glowing face of Jesus. Moses is there. Elijah's there. They have no business being there. They've been dead for a real long time. (laughs) And everyone's glowing. (laughs) And then there's this loud voice. 
This is my son who pleases me. Listen to him, right? When you hear that voice, you listen to Jesus. At that point, you're listening to Jesus. They fall down. They're terrified. Fear fills them. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Arise. And everything's back to normal. But just like Moses' face, Jesus' face shone. Jesus comes to earth, God, man, comes, God comes to earth. Now we have God, man, 100% God, 100% man, hypostatic union, Jesus. And who comes to minister to Jesus? Who, does, who can Jesus call upon whenever he wants? Moses and Elijah, of course, why not? Why, I mean, if you're gonna go to the mountain, you mean just call up Moses and Elijah. He's walking here now towards the cross, right? This is part of his public ministry and he's moving rapidly towards the atonement of sins of the world. Moses and Elijah there. Two pinnacle leaders of God's covenant people and the Christ who will make the covenant new. And his face shines. Well, of course it is. He's God. Of course his face shines. In fact, Jesus walking among man is probably supernaturally just stopping his face from shining at all times because it should shine. Who's going to better accurately reflect the full glory of God in creation than God himself, right? And so in this moment, what we have is a clear picture of what it looks like for a man to represent the full glory of God. But it's not Moses. It's not Moses. It's Christ. And Christ doesn't need to veil his face. Christ was probably constantly veiling his face. He probably had to. In some way, because we're talking about, you have to, we can't lose it. Christ did not hold on to his deity as though it was something he had to grasp. This is what Philippians tells us. He didn't have to hold on to his deity as though it was something he had to grasp because it was his. We read that in the English and we think it says that Christ relinquished some of his, his godhood as he became mad. No. That's not what it means. When he became man, he didn't relinquish his godhood. He was still God. He is a better Moses. He is. Now how do we get to us? Like, how do we get to us from that? All right, well, we're going to move to two more passages in Matthew. We're gonna go from Jesus displaying the glory of God to us. Now, we're going to cross over dramatic lines here. Like, they are dramatic. Like, it's hard for us. We can, all right, so how do, we, how do we move from not being able to understand what Moses looked like? Like, we can't understand what Moses looked like. What we know is that however Moses shone, okay, it was fearful. It was fearful to the people. They were all in awe of the glory of God that shone on Moses' face. And how do we get to something that we can't understand to the reality that you have been given more full access to the glory of God and its displaying than Moses. Like, how do we get to that when we can't even understand the one thing? Let's, let's look at the scripture. Matthew 27, verse 51. I have one verse, and this is the verse, we, we've already talked about this verse, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on it. Matthew 27, verse 51 says this. 
And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. This is the end of Matthew. This is the giving up of Christ's life in exchange for the sins of his people. The blood of the lamb who is slain destroys the barrier between God and man. The barrier that had to be erected by Moses and the Israelites and the Hebrews to veil, to guard the glory of God from man is torn in two from top to bottom by Christ. That's the first thing you have to understand in order to get from, I can't understand what Moses looked like, (laughs) reflecting the glory of God to, you can more accurately reflect the glory of God than Moses could. The first thing you have to understand is all of the things that blocked access to God were destroyed through the blood of Christ. The unholiness, the vile transgression, the trespasses, the sin, the consuming cancer of sin and death are destroyed by Christ. The veil is torn. That's the first thing you have to understand. But let's also look at the exact words of Christ when it comes to this subject about where you and I stand right now on the face of this earth. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Here we have the disciples of John the Baptist speaking about John the Baptist to Christ. And we have uh, John seeking to know more about the Christ. And in this, we get a revelation about how great John is from Jesus' own mouth. I don't know if you're aware about this, but in this one verse, we're going to find out the, who the greatest person that ever lived was. You know that question? It's like, who is the greatest fill in the blank? And the answer is, Jesus told us in Matthew who the greatest man besides him that ever lived was. Matthew 11, verse 11 says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen another greater than who? John the Baptist, right? So we're like, who was the greatest football player? Who was the greatest, who was the greatest musician? Who was the greatest artist? Who's the greatest chef? And I'm like, just John the Baptist. Everyone else born of women is below him, <laughs> okay? The greatest man born of a woman is John the Baptist. Why, who, how? There's so many other people. And I, look, here's what I'm telling you. I don't know. But when Jesus says it, I'm going to go ahead and believe it. All right? Amen? Amen. But that's not where this verse ends. What else does this verse say? The greatest dude ever, the dude, is John the Baptist. How does this verse go on? Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that John the Baptist did not fully experience the, the culmination of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Has Jesus died and resurrected yet? Did John the Baptist die before Jesus died and resurrected? So everything that bring, brought about salvation, salvific faith in John the Baptist was looking forward, correct? To the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? 
We are on the other side of the death, burial, and resurrection of the capital L-O-R-D. God as man, God and man together, dying and resurrecting and conquering sin and death. We are on this side of it. Greater is the least in all the kingdom of God than John the Baptist. And the way he says that is specific because you are not just born of a woman, you are born a new birth in Christ. Amen? If you were just born, it was just like born of a woman. John the Baptist is the best. But you understand in Christ, the things you experience and have seen are something John the Baptist has not seen or experienced. And it's so, it has, you have to feel that as the incredible weight of glory. Like it's the weight of glory that you carry. And, uh, and then at the same time, the weight of glory is weightless because it's God who carries it for you. He bestows it on you. He carries it for you. In him, you are justified. You are glorified. You are holy. You are righteous. That is not the experience of the majority of people throughout history. <laughs> Yet that is the experience of all those in Christ after he is resurrected from the grave. After the day of Pentecost, the believers of Christ are filled with what? The Holy Spirit. You are indwelt by the Spirit that indwelt Christ. You are walking around with the spirit that gave Christ the power to overcome the literal temptations of Satan. Not just the ones where we don't see him, but the ones where he's there in front of you. Right? That's the spirit that dwells in all the believers of God. Moses didn't have that. John the Baptist didn't have that. But we do. All right, so let's peel off the guard. Let's get rid of the veil. Let's, let's fully understand this. You have deeper access to reflecting the glory of God than Moses did. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I say 2 Corinthians chapter 3 because it is, all, it is only 18 verses and we shall be reading all of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we are headed. Our call, all right, is to live unveiled, carrying the glory of the gospel forward. We live unveiled. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and here we go. This is the whole chapter. Don't worry. If you've gotten to 2 Corinthians 3, you're there. We're going to read. We're going to read it all. Here is what, we, here's what Paul says to the Corinthians in his second letter. Are we beginning, <clears throat> are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Everything about this is gonna connect us back to Moses walking down. Moses walked down the mountain, Glowing with the tablets of the covenant, right? He is saying here to the Corinthians, you walk in newness of life. You're walking in newness of life 
is like the new covenant written that Moses carried down, but not on stone, not chiseled by human hands, but written on the heart. He says, I don't need a letter of commendation. Look at you and how you have changed, how you have grown, how the spirit has moved in you. Verse four, and such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Now, I just want to be clear. Adequate is a word that we downplay. You know what adequate means? Needing nothing more. That's what adequate means. Needing nothing more. Now, take adequate and apply it to God. God is adequate. God's adequacy is something that we cannot comprehend, yet we are called to that, to that adequacy. We are given that adequacy. You're adequate, not before man, not like, hey, your performance review, check, adequate. No, like, hey, your performance review before God, adequate, which is like, what? I am not adequate for God. I am inadequate, but in Christ you are made adequate. Continuing on, verse six. Who also made us as adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is the law he's speaking about. We've been given the new, better covenant through the spirit. Verse seven. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, which is what? The ministry of letter engraved in stones. It's the tablets, right? It's the 10 commandment. It's the covenant of the law. Now, all right. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses, that's how it came down the mountain, right? They couldn't look at Moses because of the glory of God. Because of the glory of his face fading as it was. How shall the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. What is he saying? He's saying, you saw the glory in Moses. We know of it. It was so deep. they, They couldn't even look at him. He had to put a veil on. And that, that was the covenant that showed them what death was what separation was, because it showed them the law and it showed them the need of bloodshed. Well, this covenant of the Spirit must show more glory. It has to, because it doesn't show death, it brings life. It's not possible for it to show less glory. It surpasses the old one. Verse 11, for if that which fades away was glory, then much more that which remains is in glory. The law, of, the law covenant has been made new. It is a new covenant in Christ's blood. We're no longer under the law of, of Moses. We're under the law of grace in Christ. Verse 12, having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are, and are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 
But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That's it. That's the thing. And I struggle. Like this, this, this concept is so overwhelming. It's one of the things like, like oh, we're about to come, like it's all about to come back. It's not going to be the same, but we're going to deal with COVID again. It's just, it's going to be a reality. It's now going to be a seasonal issue that we deal with and the fear is going to come back and the requirements are going to come back and they'll always be lessened to some degree. Always. One of the things I struggled with was the level of fear generated that we were to, re- we were to reject the sovereign hand of God for the saving hand of man. And one of the things that I struggled with was this very understanding of the glory of God and how we are called to live unveiled. And yet our, our world was saying we must put on a mask for something that was not that dangerous to a great number of people. Now, to be certain and to be very clear, I'm not saying no one can't wear a mask. That's stupid. I'm not saying that there aren't times when you should wear a mask because there are. But what I am saying is, is to walk around literally hiding your faces from one another was never something we should do because I, I, in it, we saw that there was so much fear and, and lasting regressive patterns in life for people. We could not visit with people that were dying You have to understand what that is. That moment, it makes me emotional every time again because it's so frustrating. There's a moment when someone's dying and you you couldn't be with them, people you loved, people you cared about. And for us to understand that we are to live unveiled, we are to live unveiled was the reality that the Christian church walked in. You have to understand something. It wasn't just viruses that were new that killed them in, in the New Testament. It was every virus. They had no antibiotics. They don't understand what cleanliness was. Do you know how the church grew and thrived? It grew and thrived because when the city was dying, the church stayed there because they weren't afraid. They ministered and loved the sick and the dying without masks, because they lived unveiled before the glory of God. What were they going to fear, a virus that was going to kill them when they could help serve mothers and infants that were sick in their homes? No, they stayed and served. Because what was their life if they could minister and save someone and share the gospel, not just in in helping them physically, but in literally living and speaking in the gospel? And so disturbed me that we ran towards the fear of man so quickly in those times. When the Bible tells us to not live in fear. You know what people needed? People needed a smile. And they got fear. People needed encouragement. And they got muffled sounds. Our children needed to see bold courage in the face of something that was unknown. And they saw us all pack it in. And that's what bothers me. And you're like, how are you making some sort of connection to COVID? It's nothing, I'm not trying to be, I don't want to be political, I want to be biblical. I want you to hear it. It's not how we live. Because you've been given something that is more deeply connected to displaying the glory of God than Moses beholding 
the glory of the Lord at the top of Mount Sinai. You've been given the spirit of the Lord, and you've not been given a spirit of fear. You've been given a spirit of love, and that spirit of love overcomes fear because it's the very spirit of God. Where there is the spirit, there is liberty. So of course we're gonna have communion because you and I are free in Christ and you have been given the access to display the glory of God in ways Moses could never have possibly understood. His word, his spirit, his people are yours to access all the time. Moses had none of it. Moses could get bits and pieces and glimpses in a tent. He could briefly glance at it at the top of a mountain. Think about the amount of time Moses saw the glory of God in his lifetime. It's like failing me right now exactly how Moses lived, but we have basically like three sections of 40s in Moses' life. He lived a long time. And yet what percentage of his life did he see the glory of God? Almost none of it. And yet you and I every day go to sleep with the grace of God and the glory of God present in us and we wake up with the grace and glory of God with us every day. Every day, we don't need to go into a tent to to have access to what God has said. It's in our homes. It's in our phones. It's literally everywhere we go. You and I can more fully display the glory of God than Moses ever could. Don't wear a veil about the glory of God. Live it unguarded because the world now needs to see it. They don't need to fear the presence of God. They need to run to it because Christ has given access to them through his blood. And so we must live unveiled. We must. What a gift that is. In response, we're gonna move towards communion. So take this time. This is a time to, yes, indeed, repent. I mean, repent is great. That's what we're called to do all the time, repent. God, I haven't, I haven't lived in a way that has revealed your glory, though I have access to it. God, I hold back your glory by stealing it for myself here and there. Lord God, thank you for your grace. Repent, that's, that's, that's easy. It is so easy to repent and you will find such deep restoration. But then also rejoice Thank the Lord God that he has given you the spirit of freedom, that he has given you his very spirit, that you can live and move in his word through his spirit and his people. What a gift. And then ask him, call out to him. Thank you for this salvation, Lord God. Now, how can I more fully display your glory unveiled before the world? Let's take this time and respond in that way. And after you've had some time to pray and talk to the Father of all that loves you, you can stand up, you can grab a cracker. We have white grape juice for those under 21 and of conscience. We have red wine for those over 21 and and of conscience. Both are of conscience. You can grab those, okay? Then you can can find your seat and just hold hold on to them while others are are still praying and, and, and still communicating with God. And I'll come up and I'll lead us together in the receiving of communion. That helps us remember that we are saved and you've been given the spirit of liberty. Let's spend time in response now.